Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Claire Ferguson. Claire is a senior lecturer at QUT's School of Justice and an adjunct lecturer at the University of New England. Claire's work brings together research and forensic casework in complex death investigations. Her research interests include intimate partner homicide and detection avoidance strategies employed by offenders, countermeasures used in organized crime, and police training related to these issues. She also has a list of awards, grants, and publications as long as my arm. A quick content warning here. Given the nature of Claire's work, there are mentions of murder and suicide in this episode. These topics are not explored in graphic detail, they just provide context for what her work can be like. Jodie and Claire also chat about being a woman in academia, how to support our peers, and to never, ever read the comments. Without any further ado, Claire Ferguson. Who are you? I am Claire Ferguson. I am a senior lecturer in the School of Justice, and I am the academic lead of learning and teaching for the school. And I'm a mom and a new mom, and I'm also a DIY queen and a few other things mixed in. Claire, I sense that you're not from around these parts. <laughs> why? <laughs> like why? <laughs> like why? Yes. Originally Canadian, but I am a full-fledged true blue Aussie Sheila now. So, yeah. I, awesome. I'm here to stay. I love that. How did you end up here? So I finished my undergrad degree, which I did in Canada, and I wanted to do a master's because all of my friends were like going back to live with their parents in their basement and like go back to their job that we had in high school. Because in North America, having an undergrad is not really that unique. So I wanted to do a master's and I applied for a bunch of different ones and I looked at different things. I was thinking of doing like, because um, my undergrad was in psych. I was thinking about doing a clinical sort of master's or becoming basically a four plus two, which is going straight into practice and trying to get, become a licensed psychologist et cetera, et cetera. And then just as I was finishing my undergrad degree and finishing my honors year, one of my supervisors, who I frankly hadn't liked that much throughout the process, as a lot of people think about their supervisors, said to me, you know, you're actually a lot more interested in like criminology and forensic science than you are in psychology. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. I didn't realize that, but now that you say it, it makes sense. I had been gravitating towards all of these projects that were forensic focused and criminology focused. So I thought I'll just apply for a couple of masters in criminology 
degrees that don't require an undergrad in criminology. And one that I got into was in Australia. And it started like a month after I finished my undergrad. So I just made the decision. And then a month later, I was gone. Like it wasn't something that I really debated over for very long. And I figured, look, if the master's sucks, at least I will have gone to Australia for a year. So why did you stay? I had another good supervisor when I was doing my master's, who I really liked, who said, basically, you have to do a PhD. I'm not allowing you to not do a PhD. I really want you to. <laughs> so I succumbed to that pressure and decided to do a PhD. And then, I mean, after that, I'd been here for like four years. So a lot of my adult life at that stage mm. felt like it was here. Mm. Um, so it would have been a bit strange to move back to Canada and also Australian boyfriend. Yeah. You know how that goes. Not boyfriends, but <laughs> I feel yeah. So why forensic criminology? What's interesting about that? Honestly, it's kind of the family business for us Fergusons. So my mom was the director of the parole board for a long time in Canada. My sister works in, she works with high-risk offenders now. She used to work in child protection. She's done a whole bunch of stuff with at-risk youth and blah, blah, blah. So it was always just an interest kind of around the dinner table and in our family. And yeah, I guess that's sort of where that started for me. I think like I kind of identify with the students that we have now who love crime documentaries and things like that, because that was totally me at that age. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go into this because it'll be that, but a degree. So what's it brought you to? Well, lots of realizations about that initial dream, of course, of being like, you know, some character on a TV show, basically. I just find it's so interesting to see like how powerful situations can be to some of these offenders because of my research space. A lot of these people are not the people that I look at in terms of offenders are not ones that have long criminal histories. So they're not necessarily like in and out of jail. They're often abusers and they, they're criminals, but they haven't been, they're not sort of that thing that we think about in criminology of like having risk factors for a long time and having marginalized childhoods and backgrounds and things like that for ages like they're diabolical offenders that are trying to get one over on the police and I think that that's really interesting about how arrogant they are as well and that probably goes back to my psych qualifications where I think about not necessarily mental health but like personality and stuff of these types of offenders so what types of offenders are you talking about I'm talking about murderers that try to conceal what they're doing and often plan in advance and are quite deliberate, not necessarily in terms of the timing of the offending, but in terms of how they will get away with it eventually. So many of these offenders have been thinking about this type of offending or killing this woman for a really long time, and they 
get angry in the moment and that the timing is spontaneous, but the offense has actually been in their brain forever. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really, really interesting. And often they actually tell people about that idea that they have of killing that person, or they even tell her a lot of the time that, you know, I'll kill you and make it look like an accident or make it look like you committed suicide and no one will ever know. And that's part of the fun in inverted commas for those offenders. So I think that's interesting. I feel like of everyone in the school of justice, you're the one of us that does what is probably perceived as real criminological work. And that much of your stuff is with actual real life crime scenes uh, or with crime scene images. Is that an accurate picture that I have in my head of what you do? I think I probably do some of the more applied stuff, or at least not necessarily applied. That's probably not the right word. Some of the most ideographic stuff. So I'm looking at cases. Ideographic, big words. What does that mean? Case work. Case work. You're right. Yeah. So I'm, I guess, I mean, that links to crime scenes, right? Because most of the time in research, you're not going to look at a huge sample size and look at all the crime scene photos from all of them. But yeah, I do casework type of things where we are taking the research findings and we're trying to apply them to particular offenders, offenses, victims, and so on, which I guess is pretty standard criminology or straight down the line criminology. But I also do some quant stuff, which is also pretty straight down the line, old school criminology. So where do these cases come from? They come from some not-for-profits that work for different agencies. So for example, in the U.S., agencies will sometimes outsource cases if they don't have the budget to be able to look at them. And these are generally like long, unsolved homicide cases. And they might go to these not-for-profit groups where you get a a bunch of people that are volunteering their time to look at the cases and try to come up with new avenues to move forward with them. They also come from police agencies specifically, like Australian police agencies, sometimes reach out to me and ask for advice on particular cases, sometimes lawyers. And then also I get emails from family members and people that are related to people that have died where they think that the investigation into the death was really poor and they ask for my help with drawing a conclusion about maybe what else could still be done or what went wrong. So it seems to me then that you do a lot of work that's front facing with people that's like, that's actually touching on some really difficult points of their life. How does that sit with you? The working directly with victims' families is, of course, a lot harder than when you're working with a police agency or a group of experts or whatever, because a lot of the family members, like, it's their last hope. They usually understand that really, no matter what I say, If a police agency or a coroner, for example, 
doesn't want to reopen an investigation or move in a different direction with an investigation, my opinion is probably not going to change their mind, especially when they are likely to have access to information that I don't have. So I would only have what the family has been able to get. Sometimes that's everything. Sometimes that's not very much. So that's really hard trying to explain that. Like, yes, I can look at this, but there may not be the outcome that you actually want. And if I'm your last hope, that's kind of not a fun message to deliver. But also then there's like the limits of what the research and my expertise actually allows me to say. Like you can suspect that someone has been murdered and never be able to prove it. And the police can do an excellent job or they can do a not so great job but you don't know what you don't know after it's already done. So explaining that to people can sometimes be really tough. And how people usually respond to that message. It depends how long and how, how many times they've spoken to different experts, I guess. Mm. A lot of them are not downtrodden, but they... They're hopeful, but they have low expectations because they've been let down all the time in hoping that, you know, mistakes will be fixed or what have you. But luckily, most of what I do is not directly with victims' families because it is heavy stuff to do. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with disappointing people? <laughs> not very well. <laughs> I don't like to disappoint people how I like I'm dead serious when I say that I don't deal with it well I deal with it through exercise and through doing projects that where they have a tangible outcome at the end of the day and I can say this is what I've done today but I just try to I try to be as honest and as forthright and sensitive as I can be, but, you know, sending an email back to someone saying, I'm probably not going to be able to give you the answers that you want or with the certainty that you want. Those emails take days to write because I agonize over every word mm. and trying not, trying to make sure that nothing is going to hurt them any more than they've already been hurt. It's not the funnest. It's not the funnest. It seems like just another one of these areas that we encounter so often where there's just not ideal outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's the, the problem with this type of stuff where you're like thinking about what have police done or not done or what have investigators done or not done where there's actually no fix. Like it's all well and good to say, this should have been collected or these people should have been interviewed or, you know, whatever. The body should have been this, that, and this should have happened to it. But now that it isn't done, like all we're doing is reacting and then hoping to prevent that from happening in the next case. There's not a ton you can do really to rectify things. Why do you keep doing places. it? <laughs> well, I think that that idea of preventing this stuff happening in the first place is probably what keeps me going the most. 
And so like there's some really easy ways that you can make sure that people that are doing death investigations are really well trained and know what they're doing. And it also helps because, especially in Queensland, I know that when these investigations get in front in front of the right people, they're almost guaranteed to be solved. So that's something that helps. That's like if you can, exciting. Yeah. If you can get new investigators who are, you know, maybe like they've been a detective for three days and they're making decisions about what happens with this potential suspicious death. If you can get them to know when to push the big red button and ask for assistance from a homicide unit, then that homicide, if it ends up being that, will pretty much be solved. Like in in Queensland, I think there's a 100% solve rate at the moment. So yeah, it's just about getting them to have that confidence to be able to push the big red button. Yeah. And they want to, and they're really keen on doing a good job, obviously. I don't think anybody goes into that type of work being like, oh, who cares? But it's just giving them the confidence to know when someone's trying to trick them at a crime scene, I guess, or a death scene. So you said that most of your work isn't from facing with families. Does that mean most of it's with police? The applied work that I do is more with police than with families, yeah. What does applied work mean? The work that I do that's on just one case at a time, as opposed to like the broader research projects that I do and sort of the the background literature. Are police keen to hear from you? Yeah, they're getting more keen, I think. They often want this type of expertise in complex death investigations and in weird cases. And they really, I think, enjoy hearing about what the research actually says these types of offenders do and look like and and all of that. And I think they get excited when they see the commonalities between the person that they think is the offender and the offenders in my research. So hearing that is kind of validating, I think, a lot of the time. But yeah, they seem pretty keen. They're getting a lot better with listening to a young female academic telling them how to do their job. Well, tell me about that. You <laughs> say they're getting a lot better. Does that mean they've not been great in the past? Well, I think the thing is that you have to develop these relationships like anything. Like if if you're getting an external person to come in and look at the work that's been done, you want to trust that that person isn't going to just be a jerk about it. So I've been trying to cultivate these relationships for a long time. And I do a lot of training and stuff whenever they ask me to, to, to show them that I'm, you know, normal, trustworthy person and that it's not about criticizing what goes on in these investigations. It's about fixing things if we if things did go wrong and preventing things going wrong in the future but the leadership is so important so like if they have someone who's in a leadership position that is really keen on looking at academic research then that has a massive flow on effect if you have someone at the top of the the food chain who doesn't really value academic research and researchers then, yeah, your phone's never going to ring. Is there 
like in your experience though, is the message received differently coming from a young female academic? I've never been a old male academic, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I do know that there's some, you know, stuff that happens sometimes where you're like, that's a little bit on the nose. But like when I first started doing training seminars, this wasn't in Australia, but I was doing a training seminar for a big police agency. And I, my first slide had my email address on it. And I had talked about how I was in town for a conference and I was going to be there for like five days or whatever. And when I finished my like two hour training seminar and got back to my laptop, I had two emails from two different people asking me on a date that were in the training seminar, which is just kind of gross and weird. How do you respond to that? Well, I felt a bit objectified. <laughs> I felt like, did they listen to anything I said or were they just like staring at my boobs the entire time I was up there? And I... This was a, a while ago now. I laughed about it to one of the organizers of the training. And he, who to all of his credit was an older guy, said, that is so inappropriate. And I want to know who they are. And please forward me these emails because that's something that should be a disciplinary action. So I thought that reaction made me really happy. And I thought that was a good, a good thing yeah. to have happened after, of course, it would have been better if it never happened in the first place. But afterwards, it's nice to have that kind of support from someone who's probably never been in my position. I totally, I love that. I love that, that, that there's actually that response that says the situation is not okay. Yeah. And also that you don't have to, like, you don't have to push to have that managed exactly yeah but i think I, I i can't even remember i don't think i even responded to either of those emails i'm not sure if it happened now what i would do i probably would respond and it probably wouldn't be the nicest response or i'd you know say love to have a coffee and chat about concealed homicides whenever you have one that warrants discussion Talk to you then. Love, yeah. Claire. I say would go like with a um no regards. Yes, regards or warmly. Yes. Something exactly. very passive aggressive. So what would be, I guess, what would be your advice for young women going into professional settings, knowing that I mean this stuff still occurs, me too is a thing. You know, sexual harassment remains a thing. What would be your advice to young women going into those professional settings? Oh, it's so hard. I think you have to probably think about, well, be prepared for stuff like that happening, firstly, because when that stuff started happening to me as I got into my professional life, I was like floored every time something like that would happen. And obviously, as you grow up a bit and it happens more than you 
start to be less floored. But when it was first happening, I, I was shocked. And I will say that, you know, sometimes stuff like that happened from women just as much as from men, just making you feel small when you're there as a professional. Yeah. So be prepared. But also, I think in that preparation, have like an idea of what your boundaries are and how you might want to think about reacting to stuff like that if and when it does happen so that you have a little bit of a plan beforehand and you don't end up just doing the thing that I always did, which was just like nervous laughter and walk away. Yeah, because it's an opportunity, I think, to say that's gross or, you know, not not appropriate, sir. Not appropriate, sir. You know, even like I remember once I was walking into a, a conference with a bunch of professionals and a group of women I had already presented and a group of women was walking behind me and they said, oh, here she comes lamb to the slaughter. And I was just like, I thought we should have been supporting one another. Yeah. Because they work in the industry. It's not, you know, sometimes you are faced with stuff like this. And yeah, it was just not a fun thing to have overheard. So I did turn around in that. I didn't do nervous laughter in that instance. I just turned, I just turned around and looked at them and stopped so that they would know that I heard and that it was very mean. Yeah. Did that and if they thought that I was a lamb to the slaughter, like, help then. Help. Clearly. <laughs> oh, me. Help so me. you. I guess how can we as colleagues, and that's just not we as in we academics, but how can we be more supportive of each other? Oh, God. I don't know, honestly. These are hard questions, Jody. That's I think, I think, again, like probably understanding that we have shared experiences. And I think people like us that have been in it for a while, looking out for newer, younger people is probably really important. I don't like the idea of, you know, wising people up to culprits particularly do you know what I mean like uh, tell me more <laughs> I don't really like the idea of like I have to go and say hey new person watch out for that person even though like I think it, that's a good idea for the new person I would rather I think have the culprit not be able to just continuously victimize people or make there, people feel uncomfortable is there things that we can be doing better at addressing the culprit as the source yeah I definitely think there are but I don't know what what that is or how what that looks like and I think it's probably different depending on the actual behavior and the context and all of that stuff like it's just so hard to try to address things like this do you have any advice for 
I guess, young men going into yeah. spaces. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Tell me what your advice is for young men going into professional spaces where this kind of stuff happens. Yeah, I think, I mean, just think about the things that you may not actively do yourself, but the jokes that you laugh at and the behaviors that you witness and condone that may be, you know, really perfectly innocent, but send messages. I think those little things are probably bigger than like, hey, don't sexually harass people. If we have to say that, then we're probably a little bit too far gone. I'm all on board for saying, hey, don't sexually harass people. (laughs) Yeah, but also don't laugh when someone else does it. Yeah. And yeah, be wary of the fact that things like this have real impact on colleagues and people. And, you know, it leads to people leaving jobs and turnover. And there's a lot of impacts that maybe people don't realize that I think are important. So that would be my sage advice. And do the training, whatever the training is. Do the training. Because I also, like it, things that we've talked about in, in other podcasts is that it is problematic when, say, you're a junior person on staff who's which is witnessing kind of those cultural things like the in jokes and the jokes that are a little bit off or just you know the the woman trans person queer person walks into the room and they're treated just a little bit differently and it's challenging just to in that situation stand up and say hey this is not cool yeah but there's something in, you know, pre-planning and thinking through. What are you going to do? In yeah, I totally agree. And being prepared that that probably will happen. And like I said, it's easier if you have an idea beforehand of what you would want to do when you have a clear head and you can deliberate about it a bit. When something like that actually happens and you feel uncomfortable it's a lot harder to come up with a smart idea of how to react. Hence me going to the nervous laughter and walking away all the time, which, you know, and that's the type of thing when then you think about it, like in bed that night thinking, oh, well, what if I had said this? It would have been so good. Um, (laughs) You can't do that when you feel uncomfortable. It's so interesting to me because I perceive you as the fierce butt-kicking, ice-hockey-playing, taking-no-crap, can-build-a-deck, just going to rock through life looking at crime scene photos and being completely okay with it, Claire Ferguson, which seems incongruous with the, I'm just going to walk away giggling in this situation. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I am that person. The real ass kicking one. Like sometimes people will say, oh, I'd never want to piss you off. And I'm like, I probably won't. I'll probably never confront you, (laughs) honestly. But other times I'm not. It really depends. And I find that the older I get, I don't feel more confident, but I do feel like I have less patience for that 
type of stuff. Like I care less, I guess, if this person doesn't like me or thinks I'm a bitch because I told them off for their poor behavior. I I will never go out of my way to be mean or aggressive, of course, but I mean, sometimes people deserve to have you look at them and say, can you please explain what you meant by that? One of my favorite responses, can you just tell me what, what, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll say something else that's a bit of a spin on that and has swear words, um, which is probably more aggressive, <laughs> but not in a professional setting, of course. But yeah, that's a powerful statement, I think. Yeah. I don't understand what you meant by that. Yeah, can you repeat that? Yeah, making people repeat things is... Yeah, and then they feel self-conscious that they have to say this thing yeah. again out loud. Yeah, it's a good one. Also, I'm going to throw in here a little plug that QT offers mates bystander training. Oh, yes. is uh, helping you to think through how you're going to respond to sexual assault and harassment before it happens. Yeah. I'm with you. I love this message of think it through beforehand. Do you think that online spaces have diversified the way that people may need to respond to things that they don't think is appropriate? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing that I've learned in recent years is never read the comments. Like, just don't because it's too hard to not think about later moving forward. And no matter how many nice things get said in any comment, especially on media things, no matter how many nice things get said, the one mean thing that gets said will stick in your brain hole forever and you'll think about it. And I think about Stuff that some person from probably the other side of the world who probably didn't even engage with anything that was said in the whole post just wrote. And I'm like, oh, remember in 1997 when someone said that thing? Just don't read the comments. But if you have to respond, I think there's absolutely a right and a wrong way to respond. But I try to always respond with boundaries and compassion boundaries like like? you're blocked (laughs) (laughs) talk to the hand yeah like sorry but I'm not going to be made to feel like this or I don't need this you know they don't pay me enough for this basically but also I think sometimes just being nice and saying thanks for the feedback or whatever, I hope you're not having a bad day, can go a long way as well. So you can be nice, but not put up with it. I've had conversations with Kelly Richards about online stuff because my response, I struggle with not just calling people out on their rubbish, which usually leads to an argument that isn't really going to go anywhere. Exactly. But I really want to. I know. And responding sarcastically feels so good. But then, you know, my dad always said to me, 
never fight with a pig because you get dirty and the pig likes it. And you don't want to be going back and forth with someone who's just there to get attention and piss you off. So yeah. Why bother? It's these, these difference, I guess, between like what might work. So the kindness approach might work. The engaging in a conversation that lacks the heat or trying to understand where somebody is coming from might work, but it is much more emotional labor yeah, than just responding. And I love this guy because Kelly is all like, I'm going to do what works. And I'm like, I'm going to do what feels good. <laughs> but I mean, I never know if it works because I say, thanks for the feedback. K thanks. Bye. Delete block. Yeah. They're gone yeah. now. They're gone now. And I think, like, I think we work, we need to legitimize that as a response that we don't have to buy into everyone's perspective all of the time. It's not your job to be yeah. fixing everything. Yeah. And it's really hard when it's in a professional sense too. Like, if I do some interview for like a news thing or whatever, and then they put it up online and then there's 7,000 comments, it's not my job to go through and manage those and answer follow-up questions or even just read them for my own. Like, I think there's this pressure of, you know, well, how much impact did that have? So you did this, you know, five-minute story with Channel 9 or whatever, and online it had this many likes or you know we try to quantify things like that but that then leads you down the rabbit hole of oh well yeah it had 7,000 comments but 1,000 of them made me hate myself mm -hmm. and I had to block people and yeah I just think that sometimes not engaging with that is just easier much better for your mental health. Absolutely. I don't need these people in my brain that want to make you feel bad. Yeah. You know, like your own insecurities can do that for you. You don't need another guy saying or another woman saying you're an idiot and you look yeah. stupid in that jacket. <laughs> Never. There's also, I think, something in thinking then about how do we respond to things when we see them. When you respond to something that you find confronting, what's your process that you go through in thinking through that? How you like, respond? You mean in my day-to-day -day work, like if I see something that kind of triggers me or whatever, what do mm. I do? Oh, it's hard. Recently, so my dad was having open heart surgery and I was looking at this case where the emergency medicine, they had to basically completely open this man's chest to try to save his life. And so I'm looking through, he ended up dying, and I'm looking through all of these crime scene photos that were, they weren't crime scene photos. They were photos that were taken at the hospital to show what the types of interventions that they tried to do on this man. And I'm looking at these and I'm thinking about like my dad is undergoing open heart surgery in the coming weeks. And like, I'm just looking at this sort of man around the same age. 
The case was involving a whole bunch of his kids and they were all around my age. And it was just like far out. This is just a little bit much Mm. on my sensibilities at the moment. So I had to be really deliberate in when I could engage with that content, like make a decision that firstly, do I even need to look at this? Mm. Like, is it going to drastically change the conclusions that I'm going to draw? Probably not. Like two photos would do enough. Mm-hmm. Can I read something like a summary report or something that will tell me what's happening in these photos in a brief outline instead of me having to have these images in my brain? Workarounds, basically. Mm-hmm. That's how I deal with it. If I feel like I need that, if I need to know what's in those images is there another way that i can get it besides this also can i do it in a piecemeal sort of way look at uh, one or two pictures today one or two tomorrow and so on and then actually taking the time to have a break and be real in my own little internal dialogue about the fact that that was a bit much and it didn't make me feel bad it didn't make me worry more than I needed to and yeah I think just being honest with myself about that type of content and that it does probably have an impact you know and then when you're sitting there like frantically scrubbing something like what I do when I'm stressed be like aha Uh let's connect the dots here real quick Dr. Ferguson maybe you're a little bit stressed because you're worried about your dad and you just looked at these horrible images. So I think that that does help, like being very deliberate and thoughtful about what the impacts could be, what they're likely to be for you, and then making those connections when it does happen and then giving yourself a bloody break if you don't need that content in your life on that that particular day or whatever. As I understand it, as a mid-career academic, there is no point in your life where you will not be triggered by things. Yeah. The only thing we can change is how we respond to that and get better at that kind of self-care. Yeah. I I mean, you're never going to not be triggered when you see a photo of something that's triggering. (laughs) So it's not like you're going to grow out of it. And if you grow out of it, maybe a problem. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Have you lost your sense of humanity at that stage? But I also find another thing is like, I worry a lot about compassion fatigue as well. Mm -hmm. So cases like that, there was no chance I was going to have compassion fatigue because I related so much to what was happening in my life at that stage. But sometimes I do, you know, there's that important element of removing yourself or being like one step away from the evidence that you're looking at or reading. But I also don't want to dismiss the experiences of the people that are are being written about either. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's that hard balance of you not taking everything emotionally on board, but also 
not taking too much on board that then you just it's just another you know person that's been murdered kind of thing Mm -hmm. it's really tricky I don't know the answers it's just something that I think about I think that's okay I don't think you need to know the answers Claire I think we figure it out as we go along right yeah and like our therapists can tell us (laughs) our therapists can tell us the answer (laughs) no pressure psych students I think that like therapy is super important especially for this type of work you know just Mm -hmm. it's a therapeutic to speak to people that are non-judgmental whether they're a therapist by trade or your friends or whatever your confidants but there's something really valuable in that I think to, to put it out of your head and into the world I agree. We're at time. So I'm just going to ask you two more questions. Okay. Do you have a favorite theorist slash academic and why? Honestly, not really. I don't love theory. As most people who've read my work know, I like the really concrete, simple theories that are not really behavioral theories. For example, low cards exchange principle that makes perfect sense to me and it's systematic in that if the story is that this happened for example the story is that i threw my phone and smashed it against the wall then you can expect that there's going to be some evidence on my phone that it was smashed against the wall and some evidence on the wall that my phone smashed into it And if you don't have that, then you have a problem with your theory. So I like concrete things like that. That's just easy. These are your expectations. They're met or they're not met. And how do we explain that? And I think I like it because I'm not, I, I struggle with thinking abstractly. I like math and things that make sense. And I can be like, I get it because of this, not, you know, I would have been a terrible psychologist. (laughs) It's good to know your limitations. (laughs) The next question I have for you is what are your top tips for students about rocking university? Okay. Learn from my mistakes. Don't be too scared to engage in stuff that you think you'd enjoy. So even if you don't have a buddy to go with you, or even if you end up standing there by yourself the whole time, if there's some event or whatever that you are interested in, just be a little bit vulnerable and just try. You don't have to do it ever again if you go and it's an epic fail, but just get involved as much as you can And don't let those sort of insecurities stop you. I think that that notion of being vulnerable is everybody's strength. And I think that that's, that is why people end up liking you is because you have vulnerabilities and, you know, you're worried or you're, you're able to share that with someone, which is just being vulnerable in, in and of itself. So I I think don't be so afraid of having weaknesses. It doesn't have to all be perfect Instagram ready all the time. 
Other tips are check your emails. Call your place, dear God. Check your call your mom, man. Call your mom and ask for help sometimes. Check your emails and don't leave things to the last minute if you can avoid it. I all I still do it to this day, and I always rationalize it to myself as, "Oh, I'm a pressure player. I really like the pressure of a deadline." Blah blah blah. No, I don't. I am anxious. I have had seven coffees and I'm shaking and it's hard to type because I'm worried about meeting this deadline. And when I do meet it, yes, I feel good about it, but it wasn't a fun process. If I had just done a little bit earlier, it would have been much more pleasant experience. So if you can, try to start early. Yeah. So good. I'm totally curious about what you wish you'd done at university. Oh, just I was like, oh, you know, I think actually if I had been more involved in some of the like extracurriculars and things like, for example, something like the Justice Society, if I had been more involved in stuff like that, which I probably wanted to be, I think that I would have figured out my path a lot quicker. Yeah. Like it ended up that I had to have someone basically tell me this is what you're interested in. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. But I didn't take the time to like try to sort it out myself. And I could have probably done a bit more and had a few more relevant experiences if I reached out a little bit more in the beginning. But like if I didn't have a buddy that was going with me, then I just wasn't going. Nice. I love it. I was going to parties instead, Jody. <laughs> we all know how that turned out. <laughs> well, pretty well, I would say. Well, probably fewer yeah. brain cells, but look, all about the experience. I think you're an outstanding human, Claire Ferguson, and I thoroughly appreciate you as a colleague. And Thanks, uh, Jody. You thank too. You. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This interview was hosted by the wonderful Dr. Jodie Deeth. Jodie is also our co-producer, alongside the excellent Dr. Caitlin Mollica. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. This podcast was developed with support from QUT. Thank you for listening. <laughs>